cool last one who'd think feels like I've been doing this for hours and uh, must feel like days that you guys have been listening to it still if uh, it helps so much the better but here we go last one radioactivity you're listening to BCJ Victoria College Jazz Well, actually, I said I'd start with cathode ray tubes, didn't I, rather than radioactivity. But I think of them as being related, because the electrons in a cathode ray tube really aren't behaving very differently from the electrons that form beta particles. So, cathode ray tube, and more specifically a cathode ray oscilloscope. Well, cathode rays are rays that are emitted by a cathode, and a cathode is a negative electrical connection. So we could talk about a battery having a cathode and an anode, where the cathode was the negative side and the anode was the positive side. Just we don't. You'll have come across those terms in electrochemistry. If you've done any electrolysis, you've used the terms cathode and electrode. Cathode and anode, sorry. Um, Now, what happens is that we place our cathode into a vacuum. We attach it to a heater, so it starts to warm up. When it warms up enough, and I mean seriously warm, 700 degrees C, some of the electrons have enough kinetic energy to jump out of the surface of the metal. If we didn't do this in a vacuum, they'd initially be snatched up by something else. But because we've done it in a vacuum, what happens is we get a cloud of electrons forming around the cathode. Now, as a cloud, not going anywhere, they're not very useful. But if we then apply a a big positive voltage somewhere else, those electrons will get attracted towards that big positive voltage, and we call that positive uh, end the anode. Now, if we are clever enough, we can design things so that uh, not every electron is sucked up by the anode. Some of them are accelerated by the big voltage difference, but don't actually hit the anode. They go through the hole in the middle, and they come out the other end as a beam of electrons, or a cathode ray. They were called cathode rays to begin with because they didn't know what they were. It was J.J. Thompson who managed to show that these rays were actually particles. They were actually electrons being emitted from the cathode, accelerated by the anode, and popping out of the anode as a beam. So, um, why is that useful? Well, um, essentially our ray, therefore, is transferring energy because the electrons have got a lot of kinetic energy and we're moving them from one end of our vacuum tube to the other end of our vacuum tube. And uh, on the far end of our vacuum tube, it's usual to put a coating of a phosphor. Now, phosphor is a chemical which glows when it gets hit. So our electrons hit our phosphor. They make our phosphor glow. And we can see where the beam is. We can see where the cathode ray is by looking for that glow on the phosphor. So that, of course, can be incredibly useful because we can start to make pictures using it. And that's the basis of TVs. It's also the basis of cathode ray oscilloscopes. Now, in an oscilloscope, we move the electron beam around with plates with a voltage applied to them. So if you imagine we put a plate above and we put a plate below our electron beam and we apply voltage to one side or the other, our electron beam will move away from the positive sorry away from the negative and towards the positive side of our plates so we can bend our beam up and down if we have a pair of plates side to side then we can bend it side to side and up and down and that's what we do with an oscilloscope the side to side plates they're called the x plates because they move it in the x direction the uh, side to side plates move the beam slowly from one side to the other of our screen and then zip it back again Slowly one side to the other, zip it back. Slowly one side to the other, then zip it back. And our Y-plates make our electron beam go up and down, depending on what the input to the oscilloscope is. So if we're giving it AC, they go up and down, so that what you see on a screen is a sine wave. 
if we're giving it DC, all they do is they move it up a little bit and it stays there because it doesn't change. And so we just get a flat line, but it's not a flat line along the middle because we've got a DC voltage being applied. Um, and all sorts of other things we can get to show up on the screen. We can get square waves or we can plug it into a microphone and we get a nasty old squiggle, which is the result of the really complicated waves that uh, are the sound of human voice being converted into electrical signals by the microphone and then converted into a picture by the combination of the X-plates and the Y-plates in the oscilloscope. So, cathode ray tubes uh, used to make TVs, but particularly for your course, used to make oscilloscopes. So, radiation. Well, before we do radiation, we need to make sure that you understand how an atom is built. Uh, you'll remember that an atom has a nucleus and then has electrons in the empty space around that nucleus. And that my atoms, for the most part, are empty space. That was all discovered by a chap called Rutherford. He found out by actually firing alpha particles at gold leaf and finding that most of them went through. They went through because atoms are mostly empty space. But the odd one bounced back, and he concluded that for them to bounce straight back, they had to be hitting something really dense with the same charge, and he knew the alpha particles had a positive charge. Then he deduced that the nucleus must have a positive charge, this really dense centre to atoms which are mostly empty space. We now know that the nucleus uh, is made up of protons and neutrons. Protons are the positive ones. Neutrons uh, don't have a charge and help stick it together. And together they are called nucleons. So, the things inside the nucleus, the nucleons. And so, where in chemistry you might describe the mass number, so um, the mass number of normal calcium is 40, it's got 40 protons and neutrons in its nucleus, we in physics would say the nucleon number. It's got 40 protons and neutrons, 40 things in its nucleus, the nucleon number. Uh, we'd accompany that with proton number because, of course, you remember from your chemistry that the number of protons determines which element it is. You might remember from your chemistry that the number of electrons determine which element it is, but it's not the number of electrons, it is the number of protons. It's just that if it's a neutral atom, they're the same number. But they don't have to be the same number because it could be an ion. Now, physicists, uh, we worry about the nucleus more than we worry about the electrons around the outside in this particular context. And so we're talking about uh, the proton number. Uh, sometimes it's given the symbol Z, and that's the bottom one when they're written next to the chemical symbol. And the nucleon number, sometimes given the letter A, and that's the top one when written next to the uh, chemical symbol. Um, now, a final thing to mention on this one is isotopes. An element always has to have the same number of protons, but different nuclei of that element do not have to have the same number of neutrons. They can be different. And so, same number of protons, different number of neutrons is called an isotope. Uh, hydrogen, for example, has three isotopes. There can just be a proton, there can be a proton and a neutron, or there can be a proton and three neutrons. So, hydrogen 1, hydrogen 2, hydrogen 3. And where the 1, 2 and 3 refer to the nucleon number number of things inside the nucleus. Now, for most of the time we're dealing with stable uh, isotopes, but actually there are lots of unstable isotopes. The third one of those hydrogen ones I just listed is unstable. The other two are stable, the third one is unstable. And you get unstable isotopes where there's the wrong combination of protons and neutrons, or just the thing is too heavy to exist. So all of the 
heavy elements are radioactive all of the heavy elements will decay because they're just too heavy to be stable most of the rest of the elements have a stable version or have two or three stable versions and some unstable versions as well some unstable isotopes so there we have uh, nucleon number proton number and the uh, idea of isotopes <coughs> That's our old friend Darren Dow. Thank you, Darren. Last uh, of these uh, free play tracks that I have to play you. They've got a copyright on them that allows me to use them without uh, having to pay any money. It's very nice, providing I do it in an educational context, which is most definitely what this is. Okay, where have we got to? The three types of radioactive decay. Alpha, beta, gamma. Well, those were, uh, names were coined once again by Rutherford. Rutherford was working in Manchester about the time of the turn of the 20th century, although he, of course, himself was from New Zealand. Um, 
Alpha, Beta, Gamma. Now, uh, he realised that they had different properties, and so he separated them out into the three different types. You have to know those different properties. Alpha it has a positive charge, and it's quite heavy. In fact, it turns out it's made of two protons and two neutrons, the equivalent of a uh, helium nucleus. But don't say that in answer to an exam question. Say two protons and two neutrons. And uh, we have uh, Beta. Beta, it turns out, is a very fast-moving electron very fast moving, significant fraction of the speed of light and as the speed of the light is 300 million meters per second that's fast moving so the beta particles behave a bit like the cathode rays that we were describing in the section before very fast moving electrons and then the final one gamma well gamma is a type of uh, electromagnetic radiation so people get confused because they're using radiation in different contexts here nuclear radiation well that's alpha beta gamma electromagnetic radiation well, that, of course, is uh, radio, microwave, infrared, visible, ultraviolet, X-ray, and gamma. So it turns out gamma is both yeah, nuclear radiation and electromagnetic radiation. As such, it has no charge, has no mass, and uh, has a tendency to go through things, and we call that its penetration. So gamma has a very high penetration. It goes through things, tends to ignore the fact that anything's there. Whereas beta can go through things, can end up hitting them and ionising them. Where and alpha, it's almost certainly going to hit. Alpha, it's not. It's stopped by a piece of paper. It's stopped by a few centimetres of air. It's going to hit. So we say that uh, gamma is the most penetrating. Alpha is the most ionising, most likely to hit. So penetration and ionisation go in opposite directions when you're list listing alpha, beta, and gamma. How do you tell them apart? How did Rutherford tell them apart? Well, we can put them in electric fields, and then of course the electrons will be uh, of the beta particles will be attracted towards the uh, positive side, and the uh, positive charge of the alpha particles will be attracted towards the negative side. But it's quite hard to do. Needs a massive uh, electric field uh, because these things are moving so fast. So it's more typically done with magnets because with magnets you get a bigger force the faster the uh, electrons are travelling. So actually the fact that the alpha and the beta are going really quickly helps with the bend when you bend them using magnetic fields. But they're still they bend in opposite directions. You have to be able to work out what directions they're going to bend in, which is quite hard. Gamma's easy. Gamma's not going to bend because it hasn't got a charge. Whereas alpha uh, and beta, well, alpha's going to bend um, according to Fleming's left-hand rule. So you just, whichever direction the alpha particles are going in, that's your current when you hold your three fingers up. Your force field current. Well, the current is the bottom finger pointing away from your palm. That finger is going to go in the direction that the alpha particles are going in. The question will tell you which direction the field is going in, and then you can work out which direction the force is acting, and therefore which direction the alpha particles will bend in. Okay, so the alpha particles will bend um, in the direction... Uh, that your thumb points when you use Fleming's left-hand rule. Now, they won't bend all that much because they're incredibly heavy, so you need a massive force to make them accelerate into that curve. And as you haven't got a massive force, um, then they bend a bit, they don't bend massively. Our beta particles, on the other hand, must bend in the opposite direction. You can work that out by making the beta particles as if they were travelling the other way to the alpha particles when you're working out the current. And that's because current 
when it was first worked out, assumed that all the particles involved in current were all positive. We now know that the current particles involved in current are usually negative. They're normally electrons. Um, so the direction of travel of electrons is actually the opposite direction to the direction of travel of current. And so you have to flip that finger over, which flips the force into the opposite direction, and so the beta particles will bend in the opposite direction to the alpha particles, but they'll bend more because they're a great deal lighter, and so the force will have a bigger effect upon them, so they will bend in a, in a more of a circle than the alpha particles will. And you quite often get questions where you have to draw that on. So be prepared. Get it learnt. Be prepared to draw on which direction the alpha and beta are going to bend and get them bent uh, the correct amounts, alpha less than beta. And, of course, the gamma doesn't bend because the gamma hasn't got a charge. So I haven't mentioned background yet. Background radiation is always there, nothing we can do about it. It's a random process happening all around us all of the time. A little bit more in Jersey than in other places because uh, one of the sources of background radiation is the uranium found in granite and Jersey contains quite a lot of granite. So background radiation always there. And you have to be aware of that when you're answering questions. Sometimes you might have to work out what the background is and subtract it. We actually do that in a year eight experiment where we measure the radioactivity of low salt because low salt contains a lot of potassium, some of which is potassium 40, which is the radioactive isotope. Um, but it's a tiny amount, so we have to be very careful to correct for background. So you have to measure the background radiation and subtract it off. There was a question in one of the past papers that a lot of you didn't get right, where there were three detectors, three gamma GM tubes, um, Geiger Muller tubes, detecting the radiation. One of them, its output didn't change whether there was a source there and when there wasn't a source there. And you didn't realise that that meant that that one must be detecting background. You just went, oh, that's a bit odd. You paid it no attention. Whereas what the question was telling you was the background radiation was whatever that detector was measuring and you were supposed to understand that. So background is there. It's random. Like all other radiation, it's random. There's nothing you can do about it. You just have to take it into account when you're doing your experiments. Take it into account when they describe an experiment to you so that you get it. You get all of your answers correct. Okay, and uh, what else we've got to talk about? We've got to talk about decay. Well, decay is simply when a nucleus spits out some radiation and changes into something new. But uh, you've got to understand the process of this. And you've got to be able to write down an equation that looks a bit like a chemical equation to describe that process. Now, for the heavy elements, that's pretty straightforward. Think about uranium. Uranium um, ha has a uh, standard uranium is 256, has a nucleon number of 256, and a mass of 92. And so if I want to, if it spits out an alpha particle, it's going to lose four nucleons in total, taking it down to 252, and it's going to lose two protons, taking it down to 90, and that turns out to be thorium. Thorium has 90 protons in it. And so they'll give you a partially completed equation, and you have to complete it, put it in the correct nucleon numbers, remembering that alpha has a nucleon number of four and a proton number of two, because it contains four nucleons and two protons. Um, beta is a bit harder. Beta is, yeah, beta is quite a bit harder. That's because beta um, is not actually in the nucleus. There are no electrons in the nucleus. So what on earth is going on? Well, the electron is being made 
by the nucleus when it goes through a change. It's actually making an electron and firing it out at speed. Now that's pretty weird, but it's doing that in order to maintain charge neutrality. So what's going on is that a neutron is turning into a proton. Now if a neutron turns into a proton it's created a positive charge and that's not neutral so it has to create a negative charge at the same time to compensate and so this electron gets created and this electron gets spat out because it's not allowed to be part of the nucleus and so uh, for beta decay a neutron is turning into a proton what does that mean in terms of the nucleon number? Well it means there's been no change we've still got exactly the same number of nucleons what does it mean in terms of the proton number? It means the proton number's gone up by one, isn't it? Because a neutron has turned into a proton. And so uh, we can have that with, for example, tritium, hydrogen 3. Hydrogen 3, one proton, two neutrons. Um, but it does beta decay. And so one of those neutrons turns into a proton. So we've got two protons and one neutron. And that's the same nucleon number, it's still three, but we've now got two protons making it a different element, making it helium. So instead of being hydrogen three, it becomes helium three, having spat out a beta particle. And we can put some numbers on the beta particle to make sure everything matches up. Now it's had no effect on the nucleon number, so the nucleon number of a beta particle is zero, but it has had an effect on the proton number and the effect means that to, for everything to balance the proton number on a beta particle must be minus one. So an alpha particle two and four, a beta particle minus one and zero when you're writing out what look like chemical equations for what's going on as one element turns into another element through nuclear decay. Gamma doesn't make any changes to the uh, type of uh, material it is. Gamma actually always happens after an alpha decay or a beta decay. Okay, so that's drawing out the equations. Uh, what have we got left? We've got left half-life. Well, half-life is uh, what it says. As our uranium decays away, there's less and less uranium, which means there's fewer uranium nuclei to fire out particles, which means the amount of radiation coming from it goes down. And so we always get a decay curve. We always get a curve that starts high and slowly goes down and, st but it le and levels off. Never quite gets to zero because the fewer uh, uraniums we've got, the fewer particles that are being fired out, so the fewer the detection we get, but it's not totally nothing. Um, so that gives us a uh, that gives us a decay curve, and that decay curve uh, it turns out has a quite a nice little mathematical property. It always takes the same time to halve. So if I find where the activity, the amount of uh, nuclear radiation coming from something is 100, and then I look how long it takes to get down to 50, that time will be the same time it takes to go from 50 down to 25. will be the same time that it takes from 25 to go down to 12.5, that it takes from 12.5 to go down to 6.25, and, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. It always takes the same amount of time to halve, and we call that time half life. Now it turns out that for uh, ordinary uranium um, half-life is incredibly long. Half-life is four and a half billion years. Whereas for some of the man-made things uh, that we can actually have to make in our lab because they've disappeared from nature long ago, um, we can end up with half-lives of just milliseconds. 
but uh, uranium, there's still uranium around, uranium, uh, 4.5 billion years, about the same age as the Earth, so since the Earth was formed, the amount of uranium uh, incorporated into the Earth has halved. Half-life. Um, and then where else have I got to go? Um, just safety. The safety when handling radioactive material is usually the kind of material we have available to us in schools or you have available to you in hospitals small exposure is not going to make any difference to you You know, the short time it's out to do demo in the lab the exposure to you is trivial but what you don't want to do is you don't want to get any dust from it on you that maintain, that stays radioactive and has you walking around with it for a long time so the main safety is not to touch it touch it with your tong, with tongs handle it with tongs wear gloves wash your hands um, if you're in uh, anywhere where there actually has been nuclear fallout, first thing they do is they take your clothes off you because they're covered in dust. They put you in a shower because you're covered in dust. Get as much of the radioactive dust off you as possible and then you won't be being exposed anymore. And normally that's enough to cut down your dosage so that uh, you don't have to worry. So that's what they had to do in Japan when they had the uh, nuclear fallout from Fukushima. Just take people's clothes off them make them take showers, give them fresh uncontaminated clothes and they were all uh, okay, they didn't get a big enough dose to be life threatening um, but of course the other thing you got to do is just make sure they're stored safely under lock and key, away from somewhere where somebody sits permanently uh, the rules for the ones that we store in the lab say that they're not allowed to be where somebody sits permanently, um, there has to be a two metre distance between them and uh, where ours is stored, there's plenty more than two metres between them and where somebody permanently sits. So they're absolutely fine. And I think that's it. Other than saying that I think I got the numbers wrong for uranium, but it doesn't matter, the uh, calculation was the same. I think that's me done. I hope these have been a uh, great pleasure for you to listen to. Um, I'm glad that uh, they're all over. I'm sure you're glad they're all over, except, of course, you've got to go back and listen to them all over again because this is revision, and the big way to do revision is to over-repeat and do lots of testing. So test yourself on what you've heard, test yourself on what you've read, go over and listen to it again, listen to it again tomorrow, listen to it again in a week's time, and make sure you still remember it. Low-stakes uh, low testing and lots and lots of repeats. Okay, that's me done. You've been listening to VCJ, Victoria College, Jersey.